0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Amanda Marcotte, a senior politics writer at Salon, who discusses the FBI raid on Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence and what it could signal about the Justice Department's criminal investigation of the former president. David Pepper, former chair of Ohio's Democratic Party, who raises the alarm about the Republican Party's assault on Democratic institutions at the state level and the Democrats' inadequate response. And Russell Chisholm of the Interstate Power Coalition, who takes a critical look at concessions made in the Senate's Inflation Reduction Act that traded expedited approval of the Mountain Valley Natural Gas Pipeline for climate funding. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: Indigenous and human rights groups in Brazil are condemning President Jair Bolsonaro's regime for their failure to properly investigate the June murders of indigenous activist Bruno Pereira and British journalist Dom Phillips deep in the Amazon. According to The Guardian, the pair were shot dead on the banks of the Itaquawe River by men who ambushed their boat as it headed towards their final destination. Phillips was researching a book, How to Save the Amazon, and was aided by Pereira, who worked with indigenous tribes there and knew the region well. Three local fishermen were arrested and faced murder charges, but local indigenous groups claimed the men were not acting alone, but with the knowledge or encouragement of organized crime groups. The area where the men were killed is known for illegal fishing, ranching, gold prospecting and logging, and drug gangs are active in the tri-border area, shared by Brazil, Peru, and Colombia. In a letter to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, indigenous and rights groups criticized the Bolsonaro government for not bolstering security in the notoriously unsafe Amazonian region and ignoring evidence they had earlier provided linking the violence against environmental and indigenous defenders in the area to organized crime. Millions of gig workers worldwide have been struggling to make ends meet as fuel and food prices soar due to pandemic supply chain disruption-driven inflation and the ongoing Russia-Ukraine war that spiked the cost of energy. Ride-hailing and food delivery workers say that customers are now tipping less because rides have become more expensive. Uber and its peer companies skim off around 25% of drivers' earnings, sometimes more. Yet Uber CEO Dara Shahi, who made $20 million last year, maintains that drivers' revenue looks really good and that higher gas prices have not impacted their business. The American Prospect reports that gig workers say that their companies have done little or nothing to help them cope with rising prices. Inflation has compounded other long-standing issues workers face as they spend longer hours on the road, such as fatigue and the risk of assault. What's worse is that gig companies have waged aggressive campaigns to keep their workers classified as independent contractors rather than employees with benefits. Two years ago, Uber spent $224 million to pass Proposition 22 in California that denied gig workers basic employee rights. Election administrators in Wisconsin are facing death threats from pro-Trump activists for expanding the use of drop boxes for absentee ballots during the coronavirus pandemic. For many Republicans, voter drop boxes have become toxic in the wake of Donald Trump's big lie that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from him. Now, as the 2020 midterms approach, election workers and administrators are the focus of unhinged right-wing conspiracy theories. For example, the Speaker of Wisconsin's Legislative Assembly, Republican Robin Voss, has called for five of six members of the State Election Commission who approved the 2020 election results to be criminally prosecuted for allowing clerks to more easily send absentee ballots to nursing home residents during the height of the pandemic. In July of this year, the Republican-dominated State Supreme Court upheld a ban on nearly all drop boxes. All voters must now personally place their ballot in a ballot box or deliver them to the clerk's office, even those with severe illnesses or disabilities. According to the New Yorker magazine, what's happening in Wisconsin is part of a national Republican strategy to take control of election administration and to make it harder to vote. The effort is particularly pronounced in swing states such as Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, and Florida. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manso.
0: In an unprecedented move, the FBI conducted a raid of former President Donald Trump's Florida residence at the Mar-a-Lago resort on August 8th. Trump announced the raid himself and mentioned how FBI agents had broken open a safe. According to news reports, the search of Trump's Palm Beach home appeared to be focused on documents that Mr. Trump had taken out of the White House when he left the presidency on January 20th last year. There had been earlier reports that boxes Trump had taken with him to Florida contained many pages of classified documents that were sought by officials of the National Archives. The FBI obtained a warrant to search Mar-a-Lago from a federal magistrate judge in West Palm Beach and was likely triggered by the suspected presence of government records at the resort, which is a potential crime. Commenting on the raid, a former acting U.S. solicitor general said that this search makes it likely that Trump is the target of a criminal investigation by the Justice Department. In response to the FBI action, Republican House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy accused Attorney General Merrick Garland of politically weaponizing the Justice Department and vowed an investigation if the GOP should win control of the House in November. Your reporter spoke with Amanda Marcotte, a senior politics writer at Salon.com and author, who discusses the FBI raid on Donald Trump's residence and what it could signal about the Justice Department's criminal investigation of the former president.
2: Well, I share a lot of people's skepticism that we're ever going to see anything resembling real accountability for Trump. That said, I have to point out that his statement that he released was extremely panicky. It was nonsense, and it had every indication of someone trying to get ahead of the narrative because they have no other options, right? Um, he's trying to own this narrative. He's trying to get out there in front of it and get all of his followers on board before any real information is out so that when real information comes out, it doesn't penetrate their six goals, right? So I, I think this this is not the behavior of somebody who thinks they have a lot of cards to play. This is a behavior of somebody who has a pair of deuces and that's it. So that's the the cards they're going with. Not a great hand. Um, so I'm excited about that. He his behavior is making me feel like they must have something real.
0: I was talking with somebody earlier tonight, just just for a moment, and you know we're talking about how much paperwork and documents Trump could have burned in the intervening 19 months since the coup attempt that's a lot of time to burn your documents and uh, clear out your phones and your email but you know the fact is we don't need documents we've saw it live on tv damn it you know what what yeah. are we waiting for what we're uh, it's absurd that this guy has not just him but this whole group of uh, coup plotters are not in prison if this happened in any other country we we'd say the rule of law is dead in that country
2: yeah, no, it's it's really frustrating, and I um, the deliberate pace has been um, frustrating to the point of making me wonder, and still I, I wonder if the DOJ just wanted to wash their hands of this whole thing, and the January 6th committee has been making that impossible. Mm. I really hope that's not the case, but um, uh, the timing does not look great for the DOJ on this and i recognize that they hate having to prosecute people when it's hard i get it and it's going to be hard and it's going to be hard the problem is more evidence doesn't make it less hard because the problem is not the amount of evidence as you said we saw him do it on live television everyone knows he's guilty his supporters know he's guilty his detractors know he's guilty everyone knows it the only question is whether or not you can seat a jury of 12 people that thinks that no man should be above the law. Hmm. That is the beginning and end of that story, and I think that that's their fear, and they're clinging to this hope that more evidence might be the key here because right now they've been backed into a corner by the January 6th committee that's like made it very clear that not prosecuting Trump is sending a signal that says— Actually, yes, you're above the law if you amass a certain amount of political power.
0: We hear a lot of commentators talk about the decision the Department of Justice will have to make in terms of prosecuting Trump or not. And one of the issues that they will have to grapple with, we're told, is whether the violence that may be provoked by such a an indictment of Trump by his supporters across the country will destabilize the nation to such a point that such a prosecution is dangerous in and of itself. How do you respond to that type of thinking?
2: First of all, don't negotiate with terrorists. If we let threats of violence keep us from doing justice, pursuing justice, then they will just realize that threats of violence work and they're gonna use that more and more and more often in order to get their way, so do not reward violence by giving into it. Just don't. Second of all, I think that anyone who says that is not noticing that we already have this extreme and escalating political violence problem. I mean, how many, it looks like there's a serial killer in New Mexico, killing Muslim men. Obviously the January 6th riot, you know, the proud boys um, continue to go out there mixing it up. Like, They came here to Philadelphia and got run out of town. But, you know, there are incidents going on. There are threats going on. And if they are allowed to feel like this works, they're going to do it more. The only way that we discourage violence is by showing that there are consequences for it. So I am just, I don't buy that logic at all.
0: That was Amanda Marcotte, a senior politics writer at Salon and author of the book Troll Nation. Find more analysis and commentary on the FBI raid of Trump's Florida residents by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. As the House Committee investigating Donald Trump's failed January 6 coup attempt continues to gather new evidence of the former president's culpability in a multi-pronged attack on democracy, less attention has been focused on the Republican Party's assault on democracy in state legislatures nationwide. As the November midterm election approaches, state GOP legislators have passed new voter suppression laws, imposed extreme partisan gerrymandered district maps, and nominated candidates for governor and secretary of state who vow to overturn election results that Republicans lose. This frontal assault on state-level Democratic institutions is fueled by Trump's big lie, where he falsely claims massive fraud in the 2020 election robbed him of victory. According to a New York Times investigation, 357 sitting Republican legislators, 44% of the Republican lawmakers in nine states where the 2020 presidential election was closest, have used the power of their office to discredit or try to overturn Joe Biden's election victory. Your reporter spoke with David Pepper, former chair of the Ohio Democratic Party and author of the book, Laboratories of Autocracy, a wake up call from behind the lines. Here he assesses the Republican Party's assault on democratic institutions and state legislatures and his current effort to reverse the Democratic Party's inadequate response.
3: My worry is that we in America think about democracy and politics as about people. And one of the major points in my book is the attack on democracy is happening separate and began before Trump was even president. And it will – if he's locked up tomorrow for whatever he just got searched for, the attack on democracy will continue. So we have this bad habit of sort of tying it to him when it began before him, and it will will last long past him. And the way – so basically what we have is – uh, because no one knows what happens in state houses, and they happen to be very powerful, especially when they can control voting rules, election rules, drawing of districts, as well as issues, everything from you know banning books to Roe v. Wade. I mean these states have a lot of power. Most people don't know it. that the far right has basically chosen – and Jane Mayer and the New Yorker wrote about this the other day in a way that they echoed a lot of my book that they have chosen as their place to go to undermine democracy state houses, because for a number of reasons, that's where you can get it done most effectively. You know, you saw in Kansas, Roe v. Wade is popular woman. Women want to have a right to choose. And so do men want them to have that even in Kansas. So there's a side of politics right now. That's, that's in the minority. They know it. They're the ones who want crazy gun laws, no choice for women, no exceptions. They know that if they were to run an election on a, on a fair basis, like that Kansas referendum, they know they would lose. And so in order to avoid those defeats, they are using state houses with gerrymandered districts where there's no accountability to actually ram through really unpopular laws. You know, just as an example, Ohio, any poll will tell you that Ohio, 60% plus of Ohioans support Roe v. Wade. Same in Texas, clearly same in Kansas. So rather than accepting defeat, what they're doing in a lot of states, is trying to lock in a minority rule through state houses and sadly for a generation they've been very successful. And so my call to arms in my book and the first title is Laboratories of Autocracy but the it, it, which is describing how these state houses are operating. But the subtitle is a wake up call from behind the lines. It's me saying listen everybody, I'm from Ohio, which is thought of as a moderate state. It's not acting moderate anymore because they've rigged it and put in power extremists in addition to fighting for U.S. Senate seats and the presidency, we have to fight back at the state house level or they will continue to do what they're doing all over this country. We're not really, Democrats are not engaging at this level. We don't think it's important. We think everything's about the federal government. But the other side sees that actually they can get most of their agenda done through these undemocratic state houses, and that's what they're doing. And so the book is really trying to be a wake up call. For people to see that and get to work helping win not just at the swing state level for senate races but actually down at the state house level where so much of this is happening too many democrats are still thinking it's the old political battle where okay let's say what we're for and go win you know a few senate seats in the swing dis- swing states and if we win that we'll win and once you realize what their battle is which is much deeper and everywhere not just swing states If all we do is fight for a few Senate seats, we are always on defense, and they are always on offense in the states where so much is controlled, and we're on the losing side long term.
0: David, you've had an urgent message for the Democratic Party writ large across the country that they need to stop focusing on swing states and swing districts, but they actually need to have a 50-state strategy. They need to focus on state houses, state legislators, state senators. They need to focus on governorships and secretaries of state. Uh, what has been the response to your message?
3: Just to be clear, I want to win those swing seats. I mean, we, and Tim Ryan here in Ohio could beat J.D. Vance. But we can't stop there, and that's the problem. Uh, we we basically that's all we see as valuable and important. Um, the response, uh, generally, you know, I have good friends with the head of the DNC, Jamie Harrison. He was the South Carolina party chair. He gets this. But what has to happen is we can't just say, oh yeah, that's what we have to do. It's got to be reflected in how money is invested and how sort of the infrastructure is built. Once you realize that we're not in a battle over elections and swing states, but a battle for democracy itself, that's when you really see, oh, my gosh, that's a long battle. We have to prepare accordingly. We have to fight at every level. We can't just get excited the last two months of a cycle and then put it all away until the next cycle starts. That's not how you win a long battle for democracy. So you know, one example of someone who's done this very well is Stacey Abrams. She saw it was a long battle for Georgia. She just kept going and going and going. That's how we have to think about it. So – The response I think from a lot of people would be, oh, we understand it, but we have not in the way that Republicans and the Koch brothers have. We have not shifted our overall investment and building and prioritizing in a way that reflects a very different battle we need to be waging. And my worry is until we start to do that, which involves moving some you know, taking some percentage of the money you spend in the presidential year and divide it up all four years and spending all fifty states. I mean things like that that if the Koch brothers started doing a long time ago, the Democrats just haven't really done yet. That has to change.
0: That was David Pepper, an attorney, former chair of the Ohio Democratic Party, and author of the book, Laboratories of Autocracy, a wake-up call from behind the lines. Find more analysis and commentary on the fight to protect democracy in state legislatures by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On August 7th, the U.S. Senate passed the $750 billion Inflation Reduction Act, It's a much smaller bill than President Biden's original Build Back Better plan, which died without unanimous support from Senate Democrats. This legislation was negotiated by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who had opposed earlier climate legislation. The new bill includes health care provisions and a 15% minimum tax on corporations. But its main elements... Will kickstart clean energy infrastructure and provide incentives for electric vehicles. The bill also requires completion of oil and gas projects before green energy projects can be launched. A side deal that was announced, but not voted on as yet, would streamline the permitting process for both clean and dirty fossil fuel energy projects, and according to a summary of the legislation, would require completion of the embattled Mountain Valley Pipeline through Virginia and West Virginia. After facing eight years of opposition from local and national climate justice groups, the Mountain Valley Pipeline had effectively been halted due to the loss of many permits caused by violations of environmental regulations. One of the activists who's been fighting the Mountain Valley Pipeline from the beginning is Russell Chisholm, co-chair of the Interstate Coalition Protect Our Water Heritage and Rights or Power. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Chisholm about his view of concessions to the fossil fuel industry made in the Inflation Reduction Act and his group's vow to keep fighting the pipeline. I'm not happy at all. In fact,
4: most of us feel pretty betrayed by the process. Nobody knew that this deal was coming. People were not prepared to fully understand what is contained within it. And there seems to have been some trade-off that involves getting the Mountain Valley Pipeline completed. So that reeks to high heaven uh, for all of us, really.
5: So I'm very interested in the connection between this bill, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, and Joe Manchin's demand that the Mountain Valley Pipeline be completed. What could happen between now and whenever this other bill is going to be raised? And I, I assume it's after the um, summer recess. That's what I've been hearing. I mean, what's your take on whether it can be stopped?
4: Lots of frustration down here. But I think what is clear is that people need to be ready and be organizing to oppose any kind of deal that fast tracks Mountain Valley Pipeline. Uh, until we know more specifics, it's hard to tell people exactly you know, what levers to try to pull, where to put pressure. But if anyone is looking to support our efforts, our movement um, that is now over eight years going strong and Mountain Valley Pipeline is still not built, they need to be ready. I mean, that would be the simplest thing that I could tell people right now.
5: I also wanted to understand, since it's a separate bill, If you just look at the Inflation Reduction Act, what's in there, there's a lot of bad stuff in there, too. But every analysis I've read says that it's actually, uh, on balance, there's just a lot more in it that's positive than negative. And I wondered if you share that view or if you were absolutely opposed to the passage of the bill as, as it was put together.
4: You know, we're not sure how equitably any of those provisions will be applied. We're not really entirely sure whether, you know, investments will be made in the communities that need them the most. Um, And when you consider the trade-offs that were made for leasing, um, for continued, you know, fossil fuel development as a requirement for anything that is proposed in renewables, um, it seems like there's a lot there that cancels that out. Specific pieces of the legislation that I think could have and should have been addressed separately, like funding for black lung benefits um, earned by, you know, people who are suffering because of the work that that they've done in the coal fields. Those things could have been, you know, handled um, and should have been handled probably long before this bill came forward. Yeah, it's a mixed bag. Um, and I, I think ultimately, if it comes down to there was some deal made to also finish the Mountain Valley pipeline, all we can do is oppose it. Um, that's not a deal that, that any of us down here could accept. That part of it feels pretty intentional to sort of pit the good against the bad in that bill.
5: I know you work with folks all the time from West Virginia you know, trying to stop the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Do you have any sense of how they're feeling? Or are they feeling the same way you are?
4: Yeah, we're definitely in unison in terms of our opposition to Mountain Valley Pipeline being completed. There is an opportunity here for people from West Virginia to be heard, to be seen, uh, especially in addressed to the lack of investment in their communities. A long history of extracting from that state and not really lifting up the communities that need it the most. Um, so there, there's way more work that could be done, and it needs to be done equitably, and the voices of the people that have been the hardest hit
0: need to be heard the loudest. That was Russell Chisholm, co-chair of the group Protect Our Water Heritage and Rights or Power. Learn more about the green energy and fossil fuel trade-offs in the Inflation Reduction Act by visiting our Between the Lines website at online. .org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on CKDU in Halifax, Nova Scotia, WXOJ in Florence, Massachusetts, KIDE in Hoopa, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you catch your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, and Amanzo. Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.